0: So one thing that I think comes up and it's it's coming up a lot more now is is what do we do when you have holidays like 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 Valentine's Day or, um, you know, like like New Year's Day or or things like that, which aren't part of the the Hindu tradition, but we're all, you know, citizens in a a global village. So whether you're in the U.S. or the U.K. or or in India, you're surrounded by um, by this. So you were talking about all the spend on Valentine's Day. So what should we do as, as Hindus? And I think the first thing is, um, just as good global citizens, we should do our research. So we should understand, you know, if you look at Valentine's Day, how did Valentine's Day
1: originate? Namaste, I'm Deepthi. Valentine's Day, we're no strangers to it. Be it in Europe, where it all started, or the USA, which is responsible for almost 21 billion spent uh, in 2021. Uh, And even in India, the market is growing and uh, it accounted for over 22,000 crores uh, in Valentine's Day spending. But all of this is futile without the human emotion of love and affection. So we think of love stories as those that end in happily ever after. But thousands of years ago in ancient India, love was understood in a different way. As one of the four aims of life, as a means for spiritual growth, as a celebration of the play of the divine, as something profound, beautiful, and sometimes elusive. So what does love mean to us Indians in today's context? Perhaps the author of the book, The Hindu Love Stories has the answer for us today. Uh, we are very excited uh, to have uh, Aditi Banerjee with us today. She's the author of the book, Hindu Love Stories. She is a practicing attorney at the Fortune 500 financial services company in the US. She has an MBA from Columbia and uh, she also did her uh, doctorate from Yale Law School and uh, her BA from Tufts University. Uh, She's a prolific author and speaker. Aditi's first novel, The Curse of Gandhari was a successful bestseller and it was published by Bloomsbury India. Her second novel on Shiva and Sati has been slated for publication in 22 by Bloomsbury India again. She co-edited the book, Invading the Sacred, an an analysis of Hinduism studies in America, in collaboration with Rajiv Malhotraji, and her essays have been published in prestigious journals. Welcome, Aditi. We are super excited to talk to you today. Namaste. Thank
0: you so much for having me. Uh, looking forward to talking to you today, Aditi. I think
1: it'll be a very interesting conversation. So how did you decide to write these books, Uh, especially the latest book that we're going to talk about uh, today?
0: Yes, so for Hindu love stories, um, the idea actually just came to me a a few months ago, and I was thinking about, you know, I spend a lot of time reading the the Puranas and and the Itihasa, and there's so many gems in these, uh, in this literature of ours, and I've always wanted to find ways of, you know, bringing readers into that literature, ideally into the original uh, the original text. And I find that, you know, a lot of us have become so alienated from them. So I know even in my own case, when I was growing up, I wanted to read the Srimad Bhagavat, um, I wanted to read the Mahabharata, and it was very difficult to find anything authentic in, in English. And over the past several years, there have been, um, you know more such translations made available, like uh, you know, Gita Press gorakhpur has very good English translations of the Valmiki Ramayana and the the Shrimad Um but they, they weren't necessarily immediately available. And then even when it is available, unfortunately, many of us don't don't read them. And I was thinking about things like you know, like Valentine's Day when people are thinking about uh, you know. Love or that there's interest in 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 that uh, in, in that emotion, and everything that's out there is just like you know like romance novels or it's fairy tales or, or it's these kinds of things which aren't necessarily karmic. Um, and is there like a karmic alternative to address that this this you know this need that is out there, um, this phenomenon that is out there? Um, but that looks at it from a, from a perspective. And so that was kind of the, the the origin of it.
1: Very cool. Tell us a little bit more about Hindu love stories. Sure. Um, So, you know, it's, it's
0: really looking at, so, so first of all, the topic itself, Hindu love stories, um, you know, even when I thought of it, it seemed like a little bit perhaps strange or or unusual. It's it's not something we we think of, you know, Hinduism and and, and love stories. And that in itself was was an interesting question to me, which is whenever we think about love, we think about this very modern, uh, this modern way. And I think the best example to show this contrast is, um, you know, there's a story of of King Edward of, of, of Great Britain and he actually abdicated, abdicated the throne because he wanted to marry um, this American divorcee, Wallace uh, Simpson, and um, because he wasn't able to marry her under the laws of England, he actually abdicated the throne. That's something that's considered very, you know, romantic and 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 like a good thing. But if you look at it from a from a Hindu perspective, where you have the the Ramayana, where uh, Sri Rama, um, you know, no one was more beloved to him than his wife Sita, um, but then he had to send her away. Um, you know, and people have this very stupid idea that he sent her away because he was afraid of gossip, but it's, it's no such thing. It's because, as as Raja and as one responsible for the kingdom, he had to uh, prioritize the Dharma of being uh, a good king for the subjects, which means you know taking into account. Uh, the way his his subjects feel and think, even if it's not you know appropriate or, or, or proper, um, and so that's a very difficult uh, you know sacrifice, of course. But that's what makes Shidama Shidama. So very two two very different approaches um, to a similar you know to to a similar thing, and I think nowadays we don't even understand what that Hindu perspective is. And so these stories, you know, they come from a lot of different texts and puranas. They cover a lot of different things, but they all, um, if you look at them together, there's an integrated worldview or like a values framework that comes out of it. And what I found is not only is it interesting to read, but I think we can gain a lot of practical wisdom out of it in terms of how to have more balanced, healthy relationships, how to lead a more dharmic life? How to integrate different aspects of our of ourselves and and our lives?
1: That's fascinating. Uh, you're right. Like we are so disconnected from our uh, roots uh, with the advent of Western views of love and uh, you know romance, and uh, and also uh, we've also been indoctrinated by Bollywood and uh, that view of love. So, what do you think is a dharmic? Uh, way of love like how how should uh, people that are interested in dharma and following dharma uh, how do you think they should uh, view love and days like valentine's day
0: yeah uh, so a few thoughts on that the first is uh, i think it's always helpful to start with the framework of the of the purushartha so the four principal aims of, of human life and you always start with dharma so dharma always comes first and you know, dharma is again one of those very difficult words, uh, words to define. Um, but basically, the idea that there is this, this rhythm or this order and balance and harmony in, in the cosmos, and dharma is that which regulates us to be in, in consonance and, and harmony with that, with that greater order. Um, and it's always focused on Loka Sangraha. Um, so the well-being of all sentient beings in, in the highest sense of the word, and also in one's own um, spiritual attainment, so, so moksha, so the, the highest good for the individual as well, so it's, it's both the collective and, and the individual. And then dharma is applied at many different levels, so there's the societal views of dharma, um, and then for an individual there's swadharma or the individual's own dharma. Um, part of it, which is determined by the phase of life that they're in. So your dharma when you're a student is different from your dharma when you're a dihasta or a a householder um, and things like that. So that's that's the first thing that we have to concern ourselves with. Um, The second is artha or the pursuit of of wealth um, in accordance with dharma, which means you're not just becoming wealthy to have a lot of money, but you're investing that in society and in the community around you. And then you have um, kama. And kama is again, one of those very often mistranslated words. And this is where, you know, Rajivji's books on Sanskrit non translatables is so, is so important. Um, but it's, you know, sometimes it's just translated into, into desire or, or love or lust, but it's actually just in, enjoyment in the highest sense of the word. So finding enjoyment in, in samsara and in this, in this world, again, in accordance with dharma. With um, and then finally, there is this moksha, which is the ultimate aim, which is your liberation and and enlightenment. Um, and so, when you understand kama in that context, you understand first of all, there's there's no shame or guilt or prudishness to be associated with um, with, uh, with 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 love. There's celebration of these um, of these emotions and of these these interludes where people find you know. Find a good uh, relationship, or, or they they actually enjoy themselves. This is something like our acharyas and our texts never shied away from. So if you look at you know like the Sanskrit literature of, of someone like Kalidasa or the Puranas, it's very frank descriptions um, of you know the beauty of the human form, of um, you know even the rishis and the apsaras or whoever it is enjoying their their time together. Um, and there's nothing you know morally judgmental about it um, but because it, it's in accordance with karma the question is always asked how do you do this in a way that's not destructive or, or dysfunctional but that leads both um, both partners to the to the higher aims of life um, and another um, example in the way that you see this which I write about in the in, in the preface is there's this right which is known as the the um, Kashi which, Yatra Yoga, which is part of the wedding rites in, in certain parts of India. And the way that this, this rite happens is before the wedding ceremony begins, um, there'll be a young man who's making preparations and has started um, going on his way to Takashi. And Kashi, as we all know, is a sacred, um, is a sacred abode of Shiva, it's a, it's a city of learning, it's you know, it's, it's the holiest city for, for Hindus. And uh, he's going on his way and then the father of the bride comes and says, young man, I know you are on your way to Kashi. May I suggest that you please consider my, my daughter um, who may be a partner to you and, and, and she could be your bride and she could, she could help you. And together you can you know, pursue the, the Purushartha and you know, through the grihastha Ashram or the, or the family life, um, you know, prepare yourselves for, for, for this. And um, it's easy to think of this as just kind of like a like a joke, like something funny, and then like you know like he, he's getting pulled back into samsara. But it's actually um, has a much higher meaning, which is what is the purpose for our getting married? It's not just to to have children. It's not just to you know enjoy our, our lives together. But we we are being um, you know partners who are thinking of our of our collective good, and the kashi yatra isn't something we're postponing or abandoning. It's just through this journey as a couple, we are we are pursuing that path. And I think that's kind of that perspective on on, on, on love, which, which comes from these, uh, comes from these stories. So one thing that I think comes up and it's it's coming up a lot more now is is what do we do when you have holidays like like, like Valentine's Day or um you know like like New Year's Day or, or things like that, which aren't part of the, the Hindu tradition, but we're all, you know citizens in a in, in a global village. So whether you're in the US or the UK or in India, you're surrounded by, um, by this. So you were talking about all the spend on Valentine's Day. So what should we do as Hindus? And I think the first thing is um, just as good global citizens, we should do our research. So we should understand, you know, if you look at Valentine's Day, how did Valentine's Day originate? In the, in the, in the Christian history, there, there's like a, there are stories about like St. Valentine. Who had nothing to do with 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 love? Um, He's basically just someone who was imprisoned and, and you know and, and martyred. Um, but then, um, what's interesting is it coincides with February fifteenth when there was like a, a pagan Roman holiday um, that was about um, you know about about romance and ab- about celebrating love. And then you know later on with the uh, Geoffrey Chaucer, the um, famous. Uh, of a famous writer, this became kind of popularized. Um, And so you have to understand where these origins come from. And and so many of the holidays, whether it's Easter or other things, are basically at heart pagan indigenous traditions that have been usurped and and distorted into, into other things. So I think as a basic starting point, we have to have that cognizance and not just celebrate something mindlessly. Um, the other thing is, I think it's important to, to celebrate our own holidays. So if we're going to celebrate Valentine's Day, we should also celebrate, you know, like like Ekadashi. Like actually, today is uh, is is, is Ekadashi, um, and you know, like and the Hindu New Year and Shivratri and Janmashtami and, and, and all of that. I think that's that's much more important. Um, and then the other thing is to not do um, to not. Take these holidays and do atharmic things. So sometimes we don't even have that understanding. Like for example, um, when it's our birthday, it's very common to blow out a candle, um, but actually that's a very harmful thing spiritually because to us the light is sacred, and blowing out the light is actually like bringing inauspiciousness. So things like that um, that we don't that we don't think about. Or on on New Year's Eve, if um, if if we're going to make Uh, you know, the temple stay open and have darshan, like, after midnight, that may not be, you know, in accordance with with the rites. Having said all of that, we do live in a multicultural world, and I think, unfortunately, sometimes now it's becoming, like, a a test to prove how Hindu you are by saying, like, I'm not going to wish anyone Merry Christmas. I think that kind of thing is very silly, and it's also just kind of, that this is not good, this is not, you know, a good a good way of connecting with people. So there's nothing wrong if you're doing everything else, you know, in accordance with karma to, you know, to celebrate, whether it's like a New Year's Eve or, or Valentine's Day, but do it with with, with understanding.
1: That's so true. Uh, like you mentioned, Kashi Yatra, it's a very common ritual in most Hindu weddings. And uh, I'm sure like most of us don't really understand the, the deeper spiritual meaning. And it's more of a more, you know, they, we just go through the motions because it's a part of our you know ritualistic uh, culture. So it's, uh, it's very important for uh, especially this generation to understand what our dharma stands for um, and how it views love. So how does your book uh, help us understand the Hindu or the Dharmic way of love? What can we learn from your stories?
0: Uh, so I took about, and, and these aren't you know my stories. These are just stories from the, the Puranas, the Itihasa. And all I tried to do was just put it in like accessible English because um, just that would be in a syntax that would be familiar and, and easy to read for, for a modern reader in, in, in English. Um, and the other thing I tried to do, so there's more than 25 stories and then just grouping them in, in different themes. So one is on just the beginnings of, of love, the other is on love can sometimes be, be fleeting or what happens when there's separation or how is it, um, you know, we talk about falling in love, um, but actually how can you rise through love and stories that, that show that. Um, so, uh, so for example, there's a story from the the which is um, uh, which is a which is a text by uh, that Sri Ramana She said was one of the best um, depictions of, of Advaita Vedanta. So in 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 that, uh, in that story, it's uh, there's a there's a queen, uh, a prince, and a princess. They're married, and um, the wife actually teaches the husband. So she becomes the guru of the husband. Uh, so they're married, and the husband is noticing he is so enamored with and in love with his wife. Uh, but his wife doesn't seem to be reciprocating his feelings as much. And so he says, well, why are you like this? And why are you not enjoying things? And then she's asking questions. So what is enjoyment? If today you enjoy my youth and beauty, but tomorrow I become old and, and ugly, what will happen to your enjoyment? And, and like this, over the course of the uh, of their time together, she actually... Um, is, is is his guru and, and kind of brings him to enlightenment, and not just him, but the entire uh, the entire kingdom. So there are stories like this, you know, stories about separation, about sacrifice, uh, and then you know, through reading those, um, I think a few a few things happen. One is you understand again, like the the worldview and the values and things like that. But they're also very moving stories. So. If, if we were just to sit here and talk in the abstract about Parma, artha, Kama Moksha, like yeah, that, that registers and then perhaps like in a few days you forget about it. But once you read the story of let's say like like Savitri or, or the story of uh, Pama and how she helped Krishna um, slay Narakasura, like those stories stay with you. You don't forget a story. And one of the reasons I wanted to do it in this format is because stories are so powerful. Storytelling is so powerful, and traditionally we knew this, and this is why stories and the arts were always such an important part of our civilization. But I really think, you know, just these, these stories are so memorable and inspiring and, and moving. So not only the intellect, but the the heart should be uh, the heart should be moved. And I think um, I think that that that's my that's my hope. So one that it'll leave that kind of impress and that inspiration, um, and the other that it will make readers want to read the original text in, in full. Because you know, in this kind of anthology, you have to summarize, and you have to you know, you can only do certain selections. But I hope it just uh, awakens a hunger to read, you know, like the full Puranas, the full you know. Um, Ittihasa. And actually, one of the things that was really sad when I was writing this is there are some Puranas like, like the Vishnu Purana and unfortunately, like I'm not a, a Sanskrit scholar, but when I was looking at the translations, we still don't have good English translations. Like I have to rely on something from H.H. You know, like H. Wilson and who, you know, these like Eurocentric Indologists who don't uh, uh, truly understand and appreciate our, our, our texts. But that's just the reality of it because we've neglected our own textual tradition so much. Uh, and so I really hope that there'll be more translations um, of our of, of all of our Puranas that are that are done properly and in, in an authentic way.
1: Yeah, that's very true. Uh... Like you mentioned, like most of the translations are unfortunately very Eurocentric and uh, it, they come, they look at it with their own lens and with biases and their own agenda. So I really hope that uh, we have more and more uh, Indian uh, authors that translate or at least people that uh, understand the dharmic way, even if they're in like born Indian or uh, from India, uh, they understand the Dharmic way and come up with uh, true translations. So, uh, speaking of translations, uh, you mentioned about Sanskrit non-trans- translatable. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that and how it ties into your book as well.
0: Yes. Um. So this was the thing I, I wanted to keep the book. Um, you know, like I said, like easily readable and um, and, and you know, not. Uh, not very jargony, but at the same time, to preserve the authenticity. Because, like I said, the entire purpose is to is to bring that that worldview to, to people, and it's not easy to do that in 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 English. Um, and so, um, a lot of what was uh, what took a lot of my time was figuring out, you know, how to introduce a, a Sanskrit term. Um, and then not just use like a one word translation, but actually provide like an, an explanation. Um, and then, and, you know, and then use the, keep using, uh, keep using the word. Um, there are also other interesting questions. So I was working with, uh, with, an, with an editor in, in, in the proofreading. Um, and the general convention is that if there's a, you know, if there's a Sanskrit word or word of whatever foreign language that's in, um, a, a dictionary, like, let's say, Merriam-Webster, um, then you don't put that word in, in italics, and then you have conventions on capitalization. And what we actually found is in, the, in these conventions, um, if you have the term like rakshasa or asura, that's often capitalized. But if you have the word deva or devi, it's lowercase. Like, that that's the convention. So if we were just to follow the you know, the rules of like Chicago style, like that's what we would have done. And I, I, I told my editor, I'm like, you know, that, that just makes no sense. And, um, you know, in Sanskrit you don't have this concept of capitalization, um, but in English, you know, like if you're talking about God or prophet, it'll be, it'll be um, capitalized. And so like whatever these conventions are, but just as a sign of, of respect, it feels like if you have Deva or Devi, it should, be, uh, it should be capitalized. but we have like a lot of discussions around, around this. And um, I think there are a lot of these types of questions that come up in uh, you know, not just translating meanings of words, but how we use English to express, uh, express certain things. You know, so the other side of that is when you import um, Sanskrit terms into English, how they're just really cheapened, right? So if you have like a guru, in English, you're not talking about a spiritual master, you're talking about like a fitness guru, you know? So um, nowadays you see like yoga instructors, uh, you know, I like yoga instructors uh, say like everyone who's in their class is a, is a yogi. And you have like this cheapening or, or like a pandit isn't someone who's like really renowned for his or her learning. It's just someone who comes on a talk show. You, know, you have a talk show pundit, right? And I think even in India, you see this where the word "puff" has become like this cheap term. right if you're if you're a, if you're a supporter of Modi, then you're a path. But a path is so much like patti. Like that's that's one of the most sublime uh, concepts of, of of Hinduism. When you cheapen the words like this, it may not seem like it's very important in the beginning, but over time, you're kind of corrupting these uh, these, these terms as well. So there are a lot of these kinds of things about language where we have to be much more, you know, careful, thoughtful, and, uh, and deliberative. And I'd say the other thing in this is, um, you know, this was, was uh, independently published, I I self published it. So I had that kind of like the freedom to make these choices. But if you're working with a traditional publisher, they have their in house style guides, and it can be very hard to, to deviate from that. So when we think about like power, and language and all these things are very you know tied, tied together which is again why Rajivji's work on this is so you know seminal and, and, and important.
1: Yeah uh, so most uh, Hindu stories uh, are very heteronormative so but we know that uh, in our Vedic culture uh, other forms of sexuality and uh, Uh, love were always uh, included in uh, the, the society itself was very inclusive. Do you have any sad stories uh, depicting, uh, you know, same-sex relationships or, you know, trans relationships?
0: Uh, Not in this one, but I, I, like, you know, I know, like, in, you know, Kama Sutra and other texts, they are, they are there. Um, And I think it's definitely worthy of of its exploration. So not in this one, but, you know, in, in future editions, hopefully.
1: Cool. So Aditya uh, there are seven words uh, in the Greek language to describe love and uh, Sanskrit probably has more than that. Uh, and there's love in all its nuanced forms. Could you elaborate on uh, what those nuances are?
0: Sure. So, well, I'll, I'll just say, um, I think what this reflects is having a much more, you know, nuanced, insightful, like psychologically rich understanding of of human nature and and, and of, of of emotions. So again, this goes back to language and being very careful and precise when we use the word how we're applying it. Um, so today like when we use the word love, it's it's very you know like cheap and generic, like I could love um eating a bagel and then I could love God. You know, it's it just doesn't, you know, it it doesn't mean much. Um, but in you know in in Hinduism, if we have something like Manta, which is the, the maternal love or this, uh, this feeling of affection, uh, you know, you can think of it for, for children, but it's actually like, it's more than that, it's, it's a pava. So um, even as part of your, your sadhana or your practice, if you're, if you're worshiping Devi, you're worshiping this quality of manta, and you're wanting to bring that uh, in, into yourself and, um, you know, spiritualizing that um, as this, uh, this, this Pava that you have for, for all creatures of, of the universe. Um, then you have uh, you know, you have Prema, and then you can have other things where it's more like um, intoxication or infatuation or or, or, or passions, like the different um, the different shades al- along the spectrum. And again, it, it goes to the fact of you know, when you're looking at this in the framework of, of dharma, you know, where are you on that on that continuum? So are you able to have this, this selfless, um, you know, like, like something like mantra where you just want the well-being of others and, and the scope of that is increasing? And that, you know, that it in itself becomes like a like a spiritual practice that's leading you towards karma Or is it more like this intoxication, addiction um, that you have that's leading you away from karma? So again, it's not about this moral judgment, but about understanding where you are in accordance with the dharma and the aim of the aim of moksha. And um in the in the Greek seven terms as well, also you find these these differentiation between you know like, like friendliness uh versus like flirtatious love versus this more romantic um engagement. And I think um I, I think you find this distinction between I'd say, like like this ancient conceptions of love. So not just Hindu or not just Asian, but just in, in what we feel like a traditional sense or, or or um, you know, like an Orthodox or, or, or like a like an ancient sense versus these more modern conceptions. Um, so like there is this English poem where, um, you know, this man's about to go off to, to, to war. It's, it's by, I think, Richard Lovelace is, is the poet. And he says, you know, he's leaving behind this woman and, and he tells her, I could not love thee, um, half as much loved, I not honor more. So this idea that by pursuing honor and, and duty and going off to war, he's being like more worthy of her of her love, and that makes him more capable of of love. And I think another thing that happens is in, in the modern society, we have so many you know just psychological and mental issues, so many like self esteem issues that when we talk about. Love. We're bringing like a lot of other things into it. A lot of it's just about like having unhealthy self-esteem and and this kind of neediness. And so we see love as a means of, of validation. If someone loves me, then I, there must be something in good good in me, or I'm worthy of something. But actually, the way our you know traditional you know acharyas and, and Hindus have understood it is, love is the quality of the one who is who is loving. So again, like these these um, pavas that we're talking about is from the perspective of the, um, of the lover, not the object of, of love. So in other words, the, the more, you know, karmic you are, the more spiritually attained you are, you are capable of giving pure love. And it's not coming from your own neediness or from this transactional selfish perspective, but it's just coming, uh, coming from within. So I think we've always had that understanding um, but nowadays, there's so much confusion, and it's become like a, like a, you know, again, like a, like a validation and sort of understanding these different, uh, these different pavas. Um, and then, um, you know, within Hinduism, we have paths. So I think while other um, societies, like, like the Greeks and other ancient cultures had this kind of framework, I, I don't think anyone has a sophisticated, developed and sublime, uh, you know, or a, a, a sacred framework the way that we do. So, even in pathi, there are many different rasa and, and pava. If you're looking at like the, the Natya Shastra and, and, and the rasa framework, there are so many different elements to this. Um, so, even in pathi, there's like a, a pava for um, like, like a samkhulga pava, but this feeling of union with, with the beloved, which in this case is, is the divine or one's Ishta Devata. Um, and then there's also the vihara or the, or the separation, the feeling of being separate. Um, which also is its own pava. So there's this own, um, you know, thing that we get from being in, in that pava. And then there's when you have the two together. So there are all these things, you know, just just within pasi, for example, um, very advanced, you know, conceptions and and and, and nuance to this. Um, so all of that cannot be captured by the word uh, the word love. But um, so that, those are my thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, it's amazing how advanced our culture was uh, in terms of you know coming up with understanding the nuances uh, and the, uh, the sublime emotions uh, in human psyche and coming up with appropriate words for it. Uh, I remember reading somewhere that uh, language influences human behavior and culture. So if you don't have words to describe some feelings, uh, eventually those uh, feelings are kind of eliminated from that culture. So there might actually not be that full range of emotions that humans are capable of if there aren't words to describe it in the language that you use. So uh, thank you for diving into that for us. So uh, help us understand how to, uh, how would you differentiate uh, Prema and Sneha and uh, uh, Kama or Moha? Uh, So, you know, again, like,
0: like, like Moha is is kind of like this uh, delusive attachment, right? So it's, um, if you have a sense of uh, like ownership or possession or that this person is 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 mine, and uh, that's kind of like a, a, a moha. And, and and that can, again, because these things aren't like morally judgmental. So even if you're like a, a parent and you have a child um, or if you're a child with, with your parents, like even in that purest form of love, there can be this this moha that, that comes. Um, and so the idea is that, you know, but when you have a relationship, you should think of it as um, you know, like Ishwara has provided this, this person into my guardianship. And therefore, it is my duty or it is my karma to do what is best for them. Um, and this kind of like, non-attached love, which is very difficult to, to do in practice, but that's kind of the, that, that's kind of the aim. So always looking to, to purify uh, towards that. Um, you know, again, the kama can be understood as, you know, I think sometimes it's, it's kind of just understood as as lust, but I think again, that's 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 a kind of a crude way of, of understanding it. It's it's really the sense of enjoyment. So I think the enjoyment you get from another's company, um, and then this too can be, um, you know. It, it, it's not that it's good or bad, like there's a, you know, one of the purushartha, it, it, it's there, it, it should be there, but then again, you know, it's it's, it's in that in that continuum, so when is it um, perhaps too much, and, and when do you need, you know, more of it, so for example, um, there's this, uh, the story of Agastya and Lopamudra, so Agastya is a, is a great Muni, and, and Lopamudra is also a, a Rishika, and she's the um, the the mantra ishta for some of the the mantras in, in the Rig Veda and there's a very famous hymn in the Rig Veda where um, Lopa mudra actually complains that uh, agastya muni her husband has been uh, n- neglecting her for for for, for so, you know for so long because he's so um, he's so immersed in his sadhana that he should also pay attention to her and then she it, it's not done in like a complaining way it, it's just done in a very in a profound way. she's just saying you know like men should also come to their come to their wives and it's it's kind of the celebration of, of both aspects being there and actually um and, and and he he agrees and at the end he is hailed and they're hailed for, uh, for for honoring both in, in in effect. um so this kind of idea is 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 there um, and then again you know with, with like month then Neha you have these you know these are you know in, in a sense um, Higher because it's it's the sense of um, you know like almost motherly kind of uh, a, a affection, which is you know like caring for for someone, for protecting them, uh, things like that. So like this, there are just many different nuances and, um, and and aspects to that.
1: Very nice. What is the importance of Hindu storytelling in our uh, Puranas and Itihasa? Yes.
0: Um, so and, and this goes back again, I think because we look at things in so much of a Western framework. So a lot of times we think of our Puranas or Itihasa as just myths or um, you know, kind of like made up stories um, that are for, you know they' just they're just, uh, they're just you know they're, they're just kind of fictional and, and therefore um, not very important. or if they are, they're just you know symbolic um, and not as important as philosophy or like, or like the Upanishads. Um, and actually, this is a very gross misunderstanding of things. And again, I would go back to um, you know, like Rajivji's work in terms of you know, like being different, and this idea that you have like some traditions that are history centric, where it really matters what happened when and, and dating things, and if um, you know, if, if if Jesus wasn't born, does Christianity fall apart? And um, whereas in in our tradition, it's it's not like that. So reality and history are, are, are two different things. So um, whether something in the Puranas like literally happened or not, uh, does not take away from whether it's, it's truth. And whether something is truth, again, I think the way that our acharyas and rishis would understand that is, is there something in that that makes you understand something of the nature of samsara or human nature, the relationship between the jivan and Brahman? And is it something that leads you toward karma or towards moksha or away from it? And that is how you'd understand whether what something is is real or, or worthy of being, of being read. And that really has not much to do with whether something literally happened. You're not recording um, in a notebook what, what's happening around you. And the other thing that they understood is the importance of, of, of stories. So... There have been um, a lot of studies and books that have come out in, in recent years about like neurologically how we are um, wired for story. That's a term that uh, Lisa Crohn uses. And, and it basically is like going back to the, the most ancient of times when we were, you know, basically living in caves. Stories is how you would understand, you know, what's what's safe or um, you know, what's you know, how to be careful about things. So um, it's it said, like there's a there's a Hindu saying that if if you there are different ways you can learn that fire is bad for you. One is someone tells you if you touch fire you'll you'll be burned. Um, another is if you uh, if, if you hear a story or if you see someone else getting burned, um, and then you realize okay fire is dangerous. And the third is you you go and, and get burned yourself. So storytelling is kind of like that, where through another character. That were uh, removed from, we can we can see and learn from the experiences that that they go through, um, and so, you know, in in traditional Hinduism, you know, even when acharyas talk to each other, they use stories as a shorthand. Like if you see the story, yes, we, we understand the value from that, and, and we can talk in that language. Um, you know, I I've already spoke about the how stories are very memorable, um, because they resonate with you. So. We can talk about how truth is a very important value, and we can talk about in the abstract and be okay. Or I can tell you the story of um, there was a boy Satyakama Jabala, and his mother had sent him to the great Rishi Gautama uh, to be um, uh, to be initiated. And when he went to the the Rishi, the Rishi asked, as as is custom, you know, what is your gautra? What is your what is your lineage? And he says, well. You know, my mother um, doesn't remember. Uh, she she doesn't she doesn't know. So I don't know who my who my father was. And uh, the rishi says because you are so truthful and honest, um, you, you're you're basically uh, you deserve to be initiated into into brahmacharya. So that story kind of better exemplifies the value of, of truth, truthfulness, and and, and the ideals of, of of truthfulness that that we have than just you know, talking about abstract principles. And so these stories um, really encode a lot of um, our, our values, our philosophical principles, our metaphysics in ways that resonate with everyone. So a lot of times, when when people say, oh, this, the Itihasa Purana is our, um, you know, the panchama Veda, the Fifth Veda, uh, and it's accessible to women and shudras, people take it the wrong way take it to mean oh so it means like you know women and shudras aren't qualified for the for the Upanishads or, or the Vedas and that's one way you, you can take it but the what I really take of it is if you if you just have the Puranas and the Itihasa that by itself is enough you can get all of the um, all of the learnings all of the wisdom you'd get from the the Vedas and Upanishads just from reading the the Itihasa and Puranas because that's how much. Um, value and importance and relevance these stories have and everyone can get it so it's it's it's, it's 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 universal um so I don't think that actually I don't think that detracts from the bronze and the house. I think it just makes it even even more uh even more attractive um but unfortunately nowadays we've really forgotten this so before we would learn it from our, from our grandparents we'd be surrounded by you know plays and artwork and, and things like that and we just threw osmosis we would get it now we don't have that, and because we're not also reading this literature, we're, we're losing all of that, um, which is, which is, you know, which is a big, it's a big danger, I, I think.
1: True. Thanks to your book, uh, we can revive some of those uh, stories from our uh, itihasas and Puranas. Uh, so Aditya, you have mentioned uh, in your book that there may, there may not be a happily ever after, but there is a dharmically ever after. Uh, could you help us understand what that means? So I think, um,
0: you know, and this kind of comes from also from like this Disney culture of, you know, like, you know, and I think that's changing a little bit. But like the tradition, like when we were growing up and history, stories of like Cinderella and things like that it was always about like finding, like the ending was always happily ever after. And it was always from kind of like, you know, finding one's, uh, one's prince and, and, and things like that. Um, and this kind of, I think, gets imbibed subconsciously. And again, we're in a like, in, in popular culture, there's been so much um, attention on, on, on romance and things like this that. people come up with these very unhealthy notions. Um, again, like similar to finding self-esteem through, through love and, and relationships but well, like finding happiness. And because we've lost, um, you know, like sadhana and, and yoga and things like that, where you find contentment and fulfillment from within, um, you know, because we've abandoned all of that, we end up that like, you know, in like in our teenage years or in are young adults or when we're adults, we don't know, we're not equipped to, you know, lead lives that make us, you know, contented and fulfilled within. And so therefore we, we keep like seeking these things from, from outside and we think, oh, happiness is if I do that. Happiness is if I uh, find X, Y, Z. Um, and then it never is. You find X and then maybe for a short time you too happy, but then it's not enough and I have to move on to Y and to Z and it's, it's kind of this consumerism culture. But it's not just on spending money, it's also through emotion and, and relationships and what we invest in it. Um, and so therefore we have all of this very, very wrong and, and not in the right, in the right order. Um, so, the idea of karmically ever after is you, you just don't know. Um, even if you find the best person that you're you know, most attracted to, you, this is the person of your dreams, you don't know what, what karma has in store for you. Like, samsara is such that you're not going to find lasting happiness in samsara, even in another person, even as great as that person may be. Um, and so understanding there's like a higher purpose, a higher meaning that happiness isn't the end goal. It's something that can and will come, it, but it comes and goes. And developing like a titiksha or like this um, uh, this fortitude of, of not being so subject to like the peaks and valleys of, of the giddiness of, of love, uh, but understanding what, what dharma is. Um, and being, you know, like complete uh, in and of oneself. So if you think of like... Uh, you know, like, like Shiva and Shakti, for example, they're both, you know, they, they come together in union, but they're both, you know, complete in and of them, in and of themselves. Um, and so that that sense of, uh, of, of, of understanding that the happiness isn't the goal and karma really is, and whether you find happiness or what, how much happiness you find, you know, that's, that's karma that's determined by a lot of other things. But what you can control is, um, is, your, is, is the karma that you're creating, what's in your mind, what you're, what's in your speech, what's in your action, um, and you can pursue karma. We have to pursue karma. So those things um, that are in our control, that's what we should do. So that's kind of the idea of moving away from this false notion of happily ever after to, uh, to karma
1: uh that's uh that's really really fascinating and actually very insightful uh like you mentioned most of us grew up uh watching movies and learning about love probably from films and you know books uh that were looking at love from a very western consumerist standpoint so uh i think uh, everyone has this idea of you know princess charming or prince charming and if i find them that would be like my ultimate uh goal, and then everything would be happy after that. So, uh, so it's, it's so ingrained in our subconscious, because uh, this entire generation has grown up, uh, watching uh, all that on television and in movies. Uh, So it's it's really refreshing to actually understand the real meaning. And I hope that this book helps people look at love and life in a, in a real way, and in a more realistic way, rather than having all those notions that are, uh, you know, actually quite toxic. So, what is one thing? Uh, sorry, uh,
0: just, that's actually why I brought it into the title. So it's Hindu love
1: stories, karmically ever after. <laughs> just to make that point. I love it. I love it. So, what is one thing you would uh, want uh, your readers to take away from uh, from your book?
0: Um, I I would want them to just take the inspiration. Like any any one of these stories um, has enough you know, inspiration and, and lessons to last us a, a lifetime, but I, I just hope they find inspiration, even if it's just from, from one of those stories, um, and, and and find a way to to apply it to, the, to, to their real lives, and, I've, you know, it has nothing to do with with me, that it's, it's those, those uh, the original stories themselves, so I think just having even, like, one more insight about about love that that can be applied in, in, in real life, um, to help them, you know on, on their own journeys towards Parma and toward, toward moksha, um, that, that, that would really be the, the best thing I could ask for.
1: That's wonderful. I uh, really, really hope that uh, more, everyone reads your uh, book and uh, thank you for making all these stories so accessible. And I think this is something that's very needed for uh, the current times and our generation and uh, the generations to come. So thank you so much for writing this book and uh, wish you all the very, very best.
0: Thank you, deepi And I really enjoyed your, your questions and our conversation. So thank you for having
1: me.